Well, this will be our last week in Genesis for a while. Um, Next week, we will consider really the second line of the song we just uh, just sung. Um, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Um, Who can explore the strange design? So we'll talk about how can the Son of God die? How can the immortal one, so in whom there is no death, how can the immortal one die? And we'll see through the incarnation, the Son of God, assuming human flesh, he dies. Yet we also will be reminded of the mystery of that, that God cannot die. So in his divinity, he is alive and well. But we, um, hopefully that just kind of whet your appetite a little bit for the mystery that we'll consider next week. But this week, we'll return to Genesis 41. Um, we'll be looking at verses 37 through 57, where we see Joseph's exaltation in Egypt. If you've been with us, been going through since uh, Genesis 37, you know this is a, it's a long time coming. It's been a long journey to get to this point. Joseph, he suffered greatly for 13 years. He was forsaken by his brothers. He was falsely accused by his master's wife. And then he was forgotten by the chief cupbearer. But now here we are, 13 years later, he's exalted in the nation of Egypt. So at this time, we'll go ahead and read our passage. I'm going to read verses 37 through 57. But I want you to notice all the changes that are taking place in Joseph's life along with how his exaltation will be used to bring blessing to the nations. So look for those things as we read through. So picking up in verse 37 of Genesis 41. So this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, And put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the foods from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. 
Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. A holy God, we come to you, our Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And we humbly ask for your help this morning. Free us from distractions. This can be such a distracting time of the year. The busyness, the shiny things that catch our eye, all the advertisements, the all that is aiming for our souls, I pray that you would help us not to be drawn to anything but you. Our hearts' affections can so easily wander and go after other gods, other things. Help us to see your infinite worth. Help us to remain faithful to you. Free us from self-serving pleasures. Help us to see that true delight, true joy is to be found in you. And because of the great love with which you have loved us, grow us in our love for you. Grow us in our love for one another. We are so undeserving of your love. The love of the Father who sent the Son. The love of the Son who came willingly to reconcile and redeem us. And the love of the Spirit who applies this redemption, the redemption of Christ to us. Of this we are unworthy, but yet we are so grateful. Oh, help us, oh God, to live lives that are marked with gratitude. Help us to faithfully follow you, to obey your word. But help us to do that from a heart of gratitude, of thankfulness, not of one of trying to pay you back, not of one of trying to earn our place, but because our place has been earned. Because the debt Our debt has been paid. Might we live lives filled with thanksgiving. So help us to see your great love for your people. That we might love others, that they might love you all the more. That we would help one another love you and grow in our love for you. But help us to see your great love as revealed to us through the scriptures this morning. And I pray that you would draw lost sheep to yourself. Oh, that Christ would be magnified among us today. Pray that he would be high and lifted up. Pray you would minimize me, minimize all of us, that we would see your glory and that you would maximize our joy in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray. Amen. So it's not uncommon for us to desire positions of authority, to desire positions of prominence, It's not uncommon for us to desire recognition, praise. Many of us want to be exalted. Many of us want to be lifted up. I mean, just think about it. How many young people have you asked? You ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, you know what? I want to be a lowly slave. I want to be a servant. I want to be a lowly servant. You hear that? No, we don't hear that because it's common for us to desire an elevated status. Now, We wouldn't necessarily want the burdens of the elevated status if we knew what those burdens were. I mean, that's why when we look at the presidents, I mean, this is something you see. You look at a president when he goes into office and when he comes out, um, especially if he's a younger man going in, he looks much older than four or eight years have 
would do to somebody because of all the burdens. So many of us do not want the burdens if we knew what they were, but we still want the position of prominence. We want the recognition. Many of us are more like Joseph's brothers than we like to admit. Remember, back in Genesis 37, remember his brothers. They were jealous of Joseph. But why were they jealous of Joseph? Remember, he told them his dreams, his dreams which came from God. And these dreams showed that he would be elevated to a position of authority. This authority would extend over them. Remember, they would bow down before him. So they were jealous. Well, why were they jealous? I think we can assume that they wanted that same position. They wanted the exaltation. And the same is true for many of us today. We want to be exalted like Joseph. But would you still want to be exalted if you had to endure 13 years of slavery and imprisonment? You know, we want the exaltation, but we don't necessarily want the humiliation. As we've seen in the book of Genesis, Joseph's exaltation was preceded by many years of humiliation. His brothers disowned him, treated him like a lowly slave. His master in Egypt threw him into prison, even though he was innocent. And Pharaoh's cupbearer, his chief cupbearer, forgot about him, leaving him to rot in prison. He was greatly humiliated for 13 years, forsaken, falsely accused, and forgotten. And while he experienced such great humiliation all these years, his humiliation came to an end, as we saw last week when Pharaoh had two troubling dreams. These dreams came on the same night. He woke up. After these dreams, he summoned all the magicians, all the wise men of the land, and there was no one who could interpret his dreams. Yet behind the scenes, unbeknownst to Pharaoh, God had sent Joseph. And Joseph will finally be remembered by Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. And he'll be introduced to Pharaoh. And not only will he interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but he'll offer Pharaoh a proposal. And Pharaoh, when he heard that, Pharaoh could have struck him down. He could have stolen Joseph's idea, claimed it as his own. But instead, he elevated Joseph to a lofty position in the land of Egypt. And now many years of, after many years of humiliation, Joseph was exalted. And while many of us, we desire exaltation like that, we desire the fine clothes, we desire the, the, the prominence, the bow the knee to me idea of what we will see here, we desire those things, but we don't want the humiliation. George Lawson, I've quoted him a number of times. He says, they are unworthy to be exalted who cannot bear to be humbled. And as Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But thanks be to God that for our sake, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus experienced intense suffering and humiliation. And because he has humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, he has been highly exalted. Whereas Joseph was exalted in Egypt, as we'll see here, the Son of God has been exalted on high. And whereas those in the day of Joseph will, will bow their knee to him, we read in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Whereas Joseph will bring temporary blessing to the nations, Jesus will bring eternal blessing to the nations. So this morning what we'll do is we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to focus upon Joseph's exaltation, which typifies the exaltation of Jesus Christ who will bless the nations of the earth. And as we'll see here, and we'll be reminded, Joseph was not exalted for his sake. He was exalted that he might bless the nations. So the two main themes here, exaltation, blessing. I, I introduced that with humiliation to see how we got here, to see how Joseph got here, to remind you how Christ was exalted on high after 
years of suffering himself and death on the cross. But Joseph, through all the suffering, has now been exalted, and he will bless the nation. So the one who was humiliated was exalted, and the one who was exalted will bring great blessing to the nations. So to help us see these themes of exaltation and blessing, we're going to ask several questions here. We've got four questions. First question, and I'll repeat these if you don't get them on the first pass. First question, why did Pharaoh elevate Joseph? The answer to that question will be found in verses 37 through 39. Second question, what does Joseph's elevated status look like? To answer that question, we'll then look at verses 40 through 45. Then the third question, did Joseph forget God in his exalted state? Verses 46 through 52 will help us answer that. And then the final question, and this will be the easy one, why do the nations come to Egypt during a time of famine? And to answer that will be in verses 53 through 57. So the four questions again, why does Pharaoh elevate Joseph? It's our first question, why? What, what is it about Joseph that causes Pharaoh to elevate him? Second question, what does Joseph's exalted state look like? So what, is, what, what are the, the, the circumstances around it? What happens? We'll look at his dress. We'll look at his authority. Third, because of all these things, does God, I'm sorry, does Joseph forget God? So does Joseph forget God in his exalted status? And then fourth, why did the nations come to Egypt during this time of famine? So this time, let's focus on our first question. Why does Pharaoh elevate Joseph. To help us remember what's going on, let's just think about last week what we saw in the earlier parts of this passage. Remember, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and he gives him a proposal. So Joseph told Pharaoh, seven years of famine are coming and then these will be followed by seven years of, I'm sorry, so it will be preceded by seven years of abundance. So famine's coming, but prior to the famine, you'll have a time of abundance. And because there will be seven years of abundance prior to the famine, Joseph proposed that Pharaoh appoint a wise man who would oversee the land of Egypt. And this wise man would impose a 20% tax on all the produce during this time of abundance. This would serve as a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine. And then after making this proposal, we read in verse 7 that this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. So remember, Joseph is not seeking to elevate himself here. He is being faithful. He's not trying to go before Pharaoh that he might be elevated. I would bet that he has no idea of what's about to come. But he gives this proposal, and this proposal was pleasing to Pharaoh. And then as we read in verse 38, Pharaoh speaks to his servants and says, Can a man like this... In whom, can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? So he recognizes something about Joseph. He recognizes that this is a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Just as Potiphar back in chapter 39 noticed that the Lord was with Joseph. Here we see that Pharaoh notices this very same reality. Now we aren't privy to Pharaoh's thoughts or the measure by which he evaluated these things. But we can say along with Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So ultimately it was God who stirred up the heart of Pharaoh to recognize Joseph as a man of God. And to recognize Joseph, as he says in verse 39, is a man discerning and wise. I mean, he says, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. We know this is the Lord at work because just think about what happens centuries later. Moses and Aaron stand before the Lord, stand before Pharaoh, coming in the name of the Lord, speaking the truth. And does Pharaoh listen? The, the, many, many pharaohs later, that king of Egypt, his heart will be hardened. He will harden his heart. He will not listen. He will refuse. But yet here, Pharaoh, Joseph standing before him, tells him about these things, things that are to come 
in the future have not yet come to pass. And Pharaoh believes. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? There's none so discerning as wise and wise as you are. As one commentator notes, Pharaoh is impressed by one thing above all others. God is with Joseph. And that is why Joseph is discerning and wise. Joseph has made a great impression in stressing that the source of his power is God, the only God. And Pharaoh recognizes this. And therefore, as we see in the following verses, he will elevate Joseph to a position of great authority. He elevates Joseph because the Spirit of God is with him. And so while I was studying this, I kept coming back to the fact, to the reality, that the very same thing can be said of Jesus Christ. During his earthly ministry, we read and we learn that the Spirit of God was with him. When Jesus was baptized by John, we see the Spirit of God, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. When he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, We read that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus said of himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So while the Spirit of God was upon both Joseph and Jesus in his earthly ministry, the kings of this earth did not recognize that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. They didn't recognize him for who he truly is. When he stood before Herod, what did Herod do? Herod says, show me a sign. Do something for me. He mocked him. He treated him with contempt. He didn't recognize him. He did not see his glory. For the glory of Christ was veiled during his earthly ministry. And apart from God opening our eyes to this glory, we would not recognize Christ for who he truly is. We're not smarter than the next person. We're not stronger or we we, we don't see better than, than someone else. It is all of grace. That's why we ought to live lives of constant gratitude. Only because the Lord, the Spirit of God works in us to open our eyes do we see and understand these truths. So circling back to Joseph. While he is not Jesus Christ, We can still say that this is an act of God that caused the king of Egypt to recognize that this is a man of God standing before him. In God's providence, Pharaoh recognized Joseph as a man of God. He could have rejected Joseph's interpretation, but instead he recognized this is a man in whom the Spirit of God indwells, or or, or the Spirit of God is in this man. And this results in Joseph's elevation, exaltation, whatever language you want to use here. But in verse 40, Pharaoh says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Potiphar recognized that the Lord was with Joseph and subsequently he set Joseph over his house. And then now we see that Pharaoh does the very same thing. But there's a significant difference between Potiphar back in chapter 39 and Pharaoh here in chapter 41. You know what it is? Pharaoh's house represents the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh is over, he's king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh's house includes the entire nation. And so Pharaoh says here that all my people shall order themselves as you command. But only Pharaoh will be greater than Joseph. So why does Pharaoh exalt Joseph? Going back to our question. Because Joseph is a man of God who is discerning and wise. As such, Pharaoh sets Joseph, he elevates him, he exalts him, so to speak. He sets him over his household, which leads to our next question. What does his exalted status look like? Well, first of all, we can say that his exalted status involves authority. He has authority. I mean, verse 40 again, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. So he has authority, great authority. That's why Pharaoh in verse 42 gives him the signet ring. The signet ring he takes from his hands, places it upon Joseph's hand, and this signet ring would be used to seal official documents. 
The one who used this would be acting in the name of the king. So when we think about Joseph's elevated status, we can say that it comes with great authority and he has authority that he will exercise in the name of the king. And this authority will extend over all the land of Egypt. In verse 41, Pharaoh said, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 44, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So Joseph has been given great authority. Remember, we've talked about this. Egypt was a, was a mighty nation. I mean, a strong civilization. And Joseph now has authority only under Pharaoh, the king. And this authority will extend throughout the land of Egypt. And second, with Joseph's elevated status, we, we looked at this last week, but he will be clothed in fine garments. In verse 42, we see that Pharaoh clothed him in garments of, garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. So last week we talked about how he was transferred, so to speak, from wearing prison clothes. So he, was, he had prison clothes on in the morning. In the evening, he's wearing garments of fine linen that were given to him by the king. This represented his change in status. He was formerly clothed as a prisoner because he was a prisoner. Now he is clothed in fine garments that have been given to him by the king because he is one of the king's men. But not only is he given new clothes, but we see here at the end of 42 that he put a gold chain about his neck. So this gold chain wasn't just a fashion statement. This is a well-known Egyptian symbol of the king's favor. Um, one Jewish scholar notes, the giving of a gold chain was one of the highest distinctions the king could bestow upon his favorites. So as we see here, Joseph was given new clothing, new apparel, accessories, so to speak, signifying his elevated status and his favorable position before the king. In addition to this, we see in verse 45 that he was given a new name. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonat Paneah. Not sure, but this name might mean God speaks and lives. So Joseph is given a new name. We'll come back to, to these things later. We'll see more of the significance of that, at least typologically. But not only is he given a new name, but as we see in verse 45, he's also given a new wife. He's given in marriage to Asana. So he's given an Egyptian wife. It's likely that Pharaoh is seeking to Egyptianize Joseph. Uh, this is perhaps to solidify his status among the Egyptians that they might recognize and respect his authority. Also, just a side note, as we will get into chapter 42 in weeks to come, or probably months to come, Joseph's brothers... They'll see him, but they don't recognize him. Yes, he was 17 when they last saw him. He's aged a little bit, but he's 30 now. But it's because he's been Egyptianized. He, he, he becomes like one of the Egyptians. I mean, he will look different. He will speak different. So just a side note to think about there. But coming back to this, so when Joseph here, his elevated status, when Pharaoh exalts him, that status comes with great authority, comes with new clothes, a new name, a new wife. And not only that, but as we'll see here, as we do see here in verse 43, the people were to bow before Joseph. Verse 43, he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph is riding in Pharaoh's second chariot. A herald would go before him, or heralds would go before him, and they would say, bow the knee. As he comes and all the people would bow before him. So just picture the scene. A lowly Hebrew slave who had been imprisoned. He was imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. But now he's been elevated to the top of Pharaoh's kingdom. Formerly, Joseph had no status. He was forsaken, falsely accused, forgotten. But now he's been exalted. After years of humiliation, he's been exalted in Pharaoh's kingdom. 
He's been given great authority in Egypt. He's been clothed in fine garments. He's received a new name. He's received a new wife. And all the people of the land were made to bow before him. If you've been with us throughout the Joseph narrative, you can probably guess where I'm going to go with this. Joseph is a type of Christ in his exaltation. But as I said before, he's only a type. We must remember that. But he is a type. And so while Joseph was given great authority, his earthly authority was still significantly limited. Christ Jesus, however, has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Nothing is outside of his reign and his rule. You know, there's great comfort that comes from knowing that there is nothing outside of his rule. That there is nothing outside of the rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And while Joseph was clothed in fine Egyptian linen, we find in Revelation 19 that that Jesus is clothed in a robe that was dipped in blood. Joseph's exaltation came through many years of suffering while Jesus' exaltation came through death. He died to redeem his people and to vindicate the honor of God. And while Joseph was given a new name, we read in Philippians 2.9 that God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. And when he returns, we read in Revelation 19 that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of lords. Joseph is second to the king. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the king of Pharaoh. He's the king of all kings. Capital K, king. Of all lowercase k, kings. But that's not where the comparisons stop. Whereas Joseph was given a bride, Jesus will come back for his bride. And when he returns, his bride will be ready for him. His bride, the church, will have been prepared. And whereas the people of the Lamb were made to bow before Joseph, in Philippians 2, we read that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Jesus has a bride, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Some will bow today, but everyone will bow in the age to come on that great day when he returns. So while Joseph's exaltation is great, it pales in comparison to the greater exaltation of Jesus who has been highly exalted. In just a few minutes, we'll, we'll, we'll consider the connection between exaltation and blessing. And how Joseph and Jesus blessed the nations through their exaltation. But first, we're going to look at verses 46 through 52. And we're going to ask our third question. Did Joseph forget God? I think this will be practical and relevant for many of us. So let's just think about his situation and why this is a legitimate question to ask. In verse 45, we've already seen that he was given an Egyptian wife. Her name was Asenath. She was the daughter of Potipharah, who was the priest of On. So the Egyptian sun god was worshipped at On. Potipharah presumably served as a priest of this false god. So it's legitimate to ask whether Joseph's marriage to this woman leads him astray. Does marriage into this family denote a shift in his allegiance? But not only that, but what about his change of status? Does his change of status now being placed in Pharaoh's household, does that cause him to forget God? And furthermore, will his prosperity, will that cause him to forget God? So Joseph has been elevated to a great position of authority, And as we see in verses 46 through 49, his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is beginning to come to pass. 
So we have that, we have his marriage, we'll get to in a second, but let's just think about what is happening. Verse 46, he's 30 years old, he's entered into the service of Pharaoh, he's overseeing the land of Egypt, and during the seven plentiful years, in verse 47, the earth produced abundantly, just as he said it would. And so he does as he said he would do. He will gather up the, the, the produce, the, the overflow, the excess, so to speak. He'll store it. And then in verse 49, we see that he stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So we know that this grain supply is not unlimited. We know that it's really not immeasurable. They just lack the resources to measure it. Growing up, I collected baseball cards. I've collected a lot of them. And if you would have asked me how many I had, I wouldn't have been able to tell you because I lost count. It wasn't because I had an infinite supply. I mean, I have a finite mind. Finite brain is the main thing. But there were too many cards to count. Essentially, I had more than enough cards. And that's the case here in Egypt. They have so much. They have more than enough. So much. They do not have an infinite supply, but they have enough grain that the nations will be able to come and buy from them during the time of famine. And I bring this to your attention because all this is happening under Joseph's leadership. The nation is prospering. And Joseph has personally prospered. As such, will Joseph forget God during this time of prosperity? I mean, we haven't seen Joseph before in a state of prosperity. We've only seen him in a state of adversity. And during times of adversity, Joseph remembered God. He didn't depart from God. He refused to sin against God with Pharaoh's wife. He's been insistent that God is the one who is interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh and of his chief officials. But that was when he was down and out. That's when he was destitute. That's when he was a captive. Now he's prosperous. He's been exalted in Egypt. He's married into an, an idolatrous family. But as we will be reminded here, Joseph does not forget God. In fact, he continues to give God all the credit. In verses 50 through 52, we see this in the birth of his two sons. This is during the time of, pl of plenty. So in verse 50, before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. In verse 51, we see the firstborn named Manasseh. Verse 52, his second son, Ephraim. And these names are significant. Not only because of the meaning that Joseph will attach to these names, but these names are Hebrew names. Remember, Joseph has been given an Egyptian name. He married an Egyptian wife, yet he gives his children Hebrew names. As one commentator notes, Joseph used Hebrew names for his children, which signify that his faith in the Lord was as strong as ever, in spite of his suffering and in spite of his success. Joseph is still a Hebrew at heart. He still belongs to his father's household which is the household of covenant blessing. And as we've seen through the life of Joseph, God's covenant blessing is not restricted to a particular place, a particular location. For God has been with Joseph and God has blessed Joseph through much pain and adversity. And Joseph has not turned his back on God. And he hasn't turned his back on God now that he has been elevated, now that he is prosperous. He gives his children Hebrew names. That's significant, signifying that. But also the meaning that he attaches to these names shows us that he has not forgotten his God. In verse 51, he names his firstborn Manasseh and says, For God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. I'm with George Lawson who said this, He did not mean that the remembrance of his toil was obliterated from his mind. But Joseph forgot his misery. He goes on to say, There is a bitter remembrance of our affliction and misery, 
and of the wormwood and the gall of our affliction. This is banished by divine providence, which saves us from all distresses, but it gives place to a pleasant remembrance of them in a contrast to that happiness by which they are succeeded. Joseph did not forget his family. For when he sees his brothers, he remembers them. When he sees his father, he, he weeps tears of joy. Joseph is simply crediting the Lord with bringing him through this hardship. And he may be saying that God has removed bitterness and resentment that he may have been harboring. So not only is, God, is, is Joseph crediting God with causing him to forget this misery, to not be consumed by it, to not dwell upon it, to not be living in that day, in that past. He also credits God with making him fruitful. Verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I mean, notice Joseph does not refer to Egypt as his home. He refers to Egypt as the land of his affliction. It's here where he's been enslaved and imprisoned, but it's here where God has made him fruitful. You see, Joseph does not take the credit for his rise to power. He does not take credit for his prosperity, nor for his children. He gives all the credit to God. And this just reminds us that Joseph does not forget God. He doesn't forget him in times of suffering or in times of prosperity. What about you? How is your life characterized? Do you forget God in times of suffering? Do you turn your back on God in the bad times and try to do all you can to remedy your circumstances as though you were the king of kings? Well, maybe that's not your problem. Maybe your problem is not that you forget about God during times of adversity. Maybe your problem is that you forget about God during times of plenty, during times of abundance. Do you forget God when life is going well? Do you forget God in times of material prosperity? I mean, maybe you cried out for the Lord whenever you were down and out. He heard your cry. You're on the mountaintop, so to speak, and you've forgotten your God. I said it before and I'll say it again. Our response to our present circumstances says a lot about what's in our heart. And as we see Joseph here, we ought to be encouraged by a man whose life is characterized by faith in God. And now here as he stands exalted, he recognizes that God has made him forget, has made him forget the misery, and God has made him fruitful. And later on, when we get to chapters 45 and 50, Joseph will acknowledge that God ordained both his suffering and his prosperity. I like how Ian DeGuid and Matthew Harmon, they state this in their book titled, The Gospel According to Joseph. We so often forget the overarching truth that God is the primary actor in our lives, shaping us in particular ways according to his own purposes. Joseph's two children were no more accidental than Pharaoh's two dreams or Joseph's two additional years in prison. They were the means by which God was doing something in his life. So too in our lives today, God is shaping everything, the painful as well as the joyful, to accomplish his providential purposes in us and through us in the lives of others. So Joseph lived in light of God's providence. Therefore, he was content no matter his circumstances. He had contentment. As Paul, as Paul teaches us, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. So while Joseph has gained much according to worldly standards, he has not forgotten his God. When he had nothing, he still had God. And now that he has gained much, he still has God. You see, 
As we read in Scripture, all that we now have, all that is here will be burned up. All that, Jake, all that Joseph has will be burned up. And because he has God, he will lose nothing, but will in fact gain everything. So up to this point in our passage, we've considered why Joseph was exalted. We've considered the details of his exaltation. We've seen his unwavering faith in God. And now we will look at the last section of our passage and connect Joseph's exaltation to the blessing of the nations. So to see this connection, we ask this simple question. Why did the nations come to Egypt during the time of famine? Well, verses 53 and 54, they transition the narrative from the seven years of plenty, they came to an end, and now the seven years of famine have begun. And as we see in the second half of verse 54, there was famine in all lands. This famine was not isolated to Egypt. This was a severe famine both in Egypt and in all the lands. Just look at verse 56. At the beginning of the verse, we see when the famine had spread over all the land. And at the end of the verse, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And then at the end of verse 57, the famine was severe over all the earth. This was an intense famine. It was severe. It not only touched Egypt, it spread to all the earth. And while there was famine over all the land, over all the earth, we read in verse 54, at the very end, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Famine over all the earth, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. Simple answer. Why did the nations come to Egypt during the time of famine? Because there was bread in Egypt. There's food. But we can take this answer further. And we can say, why did the nations come to Egypt? Because Joseph was there. Because Joseph was in Egypt. In verse 55, the people are crying out to Pharaoh. They're saying, they're famished, give us bread. And Pharaoh said to them, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So they're famished, they're crying to Pharaoh, he sends them to Joseph. And then in verse 56, when the famine spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses. He sold to the Egyptians. And then as we see in verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. So while it is accurate to say that the nations came to Egypt because there was bread in Egypt, it's also accurate to say that the nations came to Egypt because Joseph was in Egypt. From the immediate context, this sets the table for his reunion with his brothers. That, that happens in the, in the next few chapters. This sets the table for the dream from Genesis 37 to finally come to pass with his brothers bowing down before him. But in the broader context of, of Genesis, this narrative shows us God's partial fulfillment of his promise to bless the nations of the earth. God promised that he would bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If you remember from Genesis 12, God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When that promise is further revealed in Genesis 22, God said, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And now here in the life of Joseph, we see that promise being partially fulfilled as he is blessing the nations of the earth with food in a time of famine. Joseph stored up enough grain, enough food in Egypt to supply the nations. And in this way, he's a blessing to the nations of the earth. Joseph had to go through a series of humiliating events to get to this point, but now he's been exalted in Egypt, and in this way, the nations are blessed by Joseph as they come to Egypt to buy food. So as we continue to answer our question, why did the nations come to Egypt? We can also say, because Egypt was the location of blessing. And the blessing of food was found in Egypt because Joseph was there. 
But as I mentioned a few minutes ago, or moments ago, the blessing was only a partial fulfillment of God's promise. You see, God's promise to bless the nations was not fulfilled through the physical provision of bread. God's promise to bless the nations ultimately points to the one who will provide bread that comes down from heaven. And whoever feeds on the bread that he gives will live forever. The bread Joseph provided only satisfied for a moment. And all those who ate the bread that he gave would eventually die. But those who eat the bread that Jesus provides will live forever. Joseph and the kingdom of Egypt serve as a type and a shadow of the greater things to come. Joseph was exalted that he might be a blessing to the nations. Joseph was not exalted for himself. Joseph was not exalted so that he could experience power and authority that comes with this newfound position. He was not exalted so that he could wear fine clothes or marry an Egyptian wife. He was exalted that he might be a blessing to the nations. Likewise, Jesus Christ was exalted that he might bless the nations. But consider how much greater his blessing is. Consider how much greater the blessing is of that which the exalted Christ gives. The bread that Joseph sold was not free. It was obtained for a price. Whereas the bread that Jesus offers, it's not bought with a price because the price has already been paid. What Jesus sells is free. It has been paid for. Besides, you could never afford the bread which he provides. The only adequate price is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, the eternal Son of God. That is the price, his life. He gave his life. He offered himself on the cross. This is a price you and I could never afford. Thank God it is free. Thank God that all that is necessary for our salvation has been accomplished by Christ alone. That is the gospel message. Christ has done it all. He's done what we could not. And he doesn't even ask us to pay him back. Salvation is all of grace. So what Jesus sells is not bought with a price. And what he gives will never run out. His storehouses will never run dry. On the other hand, Joseph's storehouses, we know, while they contained a great abundance, they were not unlimited. They weren't infinite. They would eventually run dry. One day his supply would necessarily run out. But Jesus' supply is endless. For his offering of himself is eternally sufficient. It will never run dry. And the bread he offers is eternally satisfying. The bread that Joseph sold could only satisfy for a moment. But the bread that Jesus gives is the bread of life. And whoever feeds on him will live forever. If we eat his bread, we will never hunger. If we drink from his cup, we'll never thirst we won't be like the rich man in Luke 16 who begs, please send Lazarus and, just, Lazarus and just dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue to cool it. We will never know what that is like in eternity. In Christ, we will feast and we will be satisfied. We will drink and we will never thirst for that which he gives is himself. And he is eternally satisfied. So why did the nations come to Egypt? Because there's bread. Because Joseph was there. And because there's physical blessing to be had. Similarly, the same can be said of the kingdom of God. For those who come to the kingdom of God, you will find bread. For those who come to the kingdom of God, you will find the one 
who is typified by Joseph. You will find King Jesus, who is the bread of life. And because Jesus is there, you'll find eternal blessing. Now, many of you will understand what I'm about to say. But some of you may not. You see, we live in times very similar to the days of Joseph prior to the famine. But famine is coming. Famine is on the horizon only. This famine will not be an earthly famine. The consequences of this famine will be worse than physical death. Worse than physical starvation. This famine will bring an eternity of starvation. It will be an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this famine will come upon all who reject King Jesus. This famine will come upon all who refuse to bow their knee to the King of Kings. And this famine will be well-deserved if you refuse him because you've heard his warning. You've heard that a day of famine is coming. So what do you do? How do you escape? Bow your knee to King Jesus. Go to him by faith. Go to him as an empty-handed beggar with nothing because there's nothing you can give. Beg him for mercy and he will freely give it to you. He's paid the price for the bread that you could never afford. He gave his life that you might have life in him. He lived the life that you could never live, fulfilling the legal demands that stood against you. And now his works will be credited to you through faith alone, not through works because there's nothing you can do. This is the greatest news you will ever hear. Christ has done what you could not, both in his life and in his death. And he gives you this freely. And as you come to him as an empty-handed beggar, he gives you more than money goodbye. He gives you the gift of himself. And right now, this very day, by faith we enjoy his blessed presence. But one day we will enjoy his blessed presence by sight. Today we enjoy his blessed presence while we, like Joseph, live in the land of our affliction. But there's coming a day when he will take us, he will come back for us and take us to himself. And when he does, in that place, there will be no more tears, no more pain, because God will be there, and the lack of tears, the lack of pain, will allow us to enjoy more fully the blessed presence of God. So while the nations went to Egypt to buy bread from Joseph, that they might be blessed temporarily, King Jesus calls the nations to come to him this very day. Therefore, as one of his ambassadors, I call upon everyone here today, everyone to go to Christ Jesus, to buy bread from him that you might be eternally blessed. And just know, he will not refuse anyone who comes to him. He will turn no one away. He won't look at you and say, you know what, you've done, you, you, you've, you, you did too much bad stuff. No, Jesus Christ is the perfect savior for corrupt sinners, even the worst of the worst, because he died the death in your place. So come to him, and in him you will find an abundant life that is full of blessing, and along with the psalmist, you will say, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, come before you in the name of Christ, who has been exalted on high, who blesses the nations. And we are so thankful for your blessing. So thankful for the blessing of your son, the gift of your son. And by the 
powerful working of your spirit, that work, the work of Christ, has been applied to us. Oh, that we might live lives of thankfulness. And oh, that we might live lives seeking after you continually. Seeking you, the truly blessed one. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name.